Good morning, family. It's great to join you. As Debbie said, we've had a wonderful time at the South Church this morning. Yesterday, I was privileged to be with the young adult leaders that are on a camp. So it's a wonderful time in our community where the Lord is doing so much among us. And it's in that sense, sorry, let me just not be look, talking to you while I'm not looking at you. That's just rude. I'm so sorry for that. Uh, get my notes up in front of me. But uh, we're starting with our new theme for this term, which fits into our theme for the year. Those of you that have journeyed with us will know that our theme for this year has been be ready. As we felt an instruction from the Lord to say to be ready for a display of His glory. So the first three months of this year, a lot of it has actually been about preparation in our hearts and, our, and some of our abilities and our skills as disciples in the Lord Jesus. And during the last term, we did God Speaks and we spoke a lot about His voice and how do we discern His voice and be able to hear God's voice so that we could go and be those that carry His glory everywhere we go. But um, we really felt that, that there's a prophetic release and an unctioning in our midst as Hatfield. And when I say Hatfield, I, I talk about both churches and it's been phenomenal just over this year that a particular portion of Scripture has surfaced in both churches and continues to be a, a, a verse that we just feel the Lord is prophetically saying to us in church here and at the South Church in prayer gatherings and leadership times and just this Scripture from Isaiah 60 has been just repeated over and over again. And I know Isaiah 60 and uh, the first couple of verses particularly is a fundamental foundational Scripture in the life of Hatfield. It's one of those verses that was built into Hatfield right from the beginning. It, I don't know if it still is, but it's somewhere in the building. We actually have it up. Um, and, uh, but it was a word that this church was built on. And it was very interesting. It, I was reminded that at the South Church in 2013, when they built the building there, they actually wrote under the carpet Isaiah 30 on this concrete slab. So now you can't see it, but it's Isaiah 60, but it's written on the, every day we gather there to worship Isaiah 60 undergirds us uh, as a community there also. So then we know God is speaking and God is doing something. So today I want to start this series that we've entitled Arise, Shine. And although for the rest of the series we're going to spend most of the time in the book of James, we feel this, this call, this command, this instruction from the Lord in Isaiah 60 is, is an important place for us to start with. And, and we believe the Lord is saying to us at Hatfield that He wants us to, for the last part of this year, really pick up and lift up our heads and stand up and arise and, and begin to perhaps in new ways and more than before shine forth His glory. So I want to stir you with a prophetic word this morning. And uh, so let's read together. I know you read earlier in the service, but I just want to read with you Isaiah 60 verse 1 to 3. And then uh, we'll unpack it a little bit. Arise, shine. Twofold instruction. Arise, shine. For your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you, and His glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Arise, shine. This portion of Scripture was written by Isaiah, a prophet, one of the major prophets in the Old Testament. 
And um, it's a scripture that was written in a particular context, in a particular time, with a particular meaning to the nation of Israel, but it is also a scripture that we apply uh, in the, today to the whole of what we would consider to be God's people. So that would include the Jewish people that believe in God and, and that have followed God and that would proclaim to be the children of God, that follow the Messiah of the Lord, and it would include the church of the Lord Jesus, those that, everyone that believes in the Lord Jesus because the fulfillment of this scripture is actually Jesus, what makes this possible for us to arise shine. And across all time and across all spaces. So right now, when the Lord is saying, perhaps the Lord is saying across the world to His people, arise, shine. But we do want to take this scripture and apply it particularly to us here at Hatfield in our context also. And to say, the Lord is saying to us, arise, shine. To understand what this means and Possibly to have a little bit more of the weight and the context and the, so that we can apply it. Will you just give me a moment to give you a little bit of the historical perspective of what this is going on and why this word was so important at the time. Isaiah was a prophet, as I said, raised up by the Lord to particularly speak a message to the people of Israel. And his message can be divided in two main sections. The, the first part of his message was about the judgment of God. The second part of his message was about the hope that we have in God. So in Isaiah, we have this embodiment of the judgment of God and of the hope we have in God. He was prophesying in the time that was the 8th and the 7th century before Christ. Uh, that was the time he lived. He lived in Jerusalem uh, and in the southern kingdom of Judah, in those two tribes of that, that nation. It was already a time where there was great struggle in the nation of Israel and they were in a period of what we would call apostasy or rebellion against God. And God raises up this prophet to speak to them, to call them to his purposes and his plans. Now God's purposes and plans are made known to us right from the word go, from the beginning of scripture. When God created in Genesis, it was for a purpose. And part of this purpose we understand in how he positions us as his people, and what our relationship with him is like. And we've spoken about this previously in our Be Ready series. We spoke about stewardship. And this idea that we partner with God, and that God is the creator, God is the owner, God is the king, he's the Lord, but yet he asks of us to be the custodians, the caretakers, the managers of his creation. So right from the word go, God, when he created, placed Adam and Eve in a partnership with him. One of the ways that we can describe this partnership or the, or the, the sort of the, 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 the description of this contract or the parameters of this contract, we use the word covenant. God established a covenant with his people. Right from the word go, he said, I will own, you will manage. And if we partner together in this covenant, then we will see his glory on this earth. God in his wisdom chose that he will make known who he is and his glory and his goodness through us as mankind in this creation. So this was the partnership that was established from the beginning. And the word covenant for us is a very important word in the scripture. If you don't understand covenant, you will struggle to understand the scripture and the unfolding of the story of the scripture. So right there from the beginning, God established a covenant with us. And this covenant was to say, if you live according to my ways, if you eat of the tree of life, 
then this planet will have life and life in abundance. It'll be a beautiful place. It'll be a magnificent place where all that live on it, all that has created to live on this planet and on the stars, and not that I'm saying there are people living on other stars or whatever, but just talking the whole of creation, everything will have life and life in abundance. But it depends on us and God working together. But you know the story. Adam and Eve broke the covenant. A covenant is supposed to be an unbreakable agreement between parties. Where parties come together and agree on something and they cannot break that covenant. But yet in our rebellion, yet in our sin, and we decided that we're not going to fulfill our part of the covenant. So what happened is Adam and Eve ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what they basically said to God is, God, we believe this planet is better off if we take care of it and we don't let you determine how things are going to be. We'll make this planet the place it's supposed to be. We will be happier and everything around us will be happier if we decide what is wrong and right. If we use our knowledge of what is good and evil, then we will make this planet a good place and a fantastic place. And then creation will be the best of God. We don't need you to be the determiner. We will determine. And so they break, broke covenant with God. Now, one day in 2019, do you think that they made a good choice? If we think of our planet... Now, we may be arguing about global warming. Is it happening or isn't it? President Trump seems to know that, you know, what's really going on. But the rest of us, I think we all know something's not right. We all know that something is not working the way it's supposed to. We see the natural disasters. We see the struggle. We, we see our impact on this planet. But not only on the planet, we see the impact of our sin and our brokenness on each other. I don't think we've made the planet a better place. So we broke covenant with God. But the fantastic thing is, and this is the hope that we have, is that even though we said to God, we don't need you to be part of this covenant anymore, God said, I am still keeping my covenant with you. God said, I'm not going to turn my back on you. Just because you are walking away from the covenant, I will remain in the covenant. And not only will I remain in the covenant, but I will pursue you to bring you back into covenant with me. So the Old Testament is the story of the developing of how God is re-establishing this covenant with us as mankind. And God decided that if he's going to re-establish the covenant with the whole of mankind, he's going to start with a small group of people. And he's going to work with a small group of people and he's going to reestablish the covenant first with a man and then with a family. And then with that family, he's going to start a nation and that nation will walk in covenant with him so that through that nation, all people will be able to be reestablished in covenant with him. And everybody can come back into that agreement that would lead to life and life in abundance. So you can read out throughout the Old Testament, there's this covenant development with this Noah, God had a covenant. Then with Abraham, he had a covenant. And you remember, if you read Genesis 12 onwards, the, the covenant God had with Abraham where he said, I want to bless you, inviting you into covenant. And God literally physically cut covenant with Abraham when they separated the animals. And God said to him, I'm going to make this covenant with you so that through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And out of Abraham, he raised up a nation. And then God made a covenant with that nation, the nation of Israel. And, and he said to them, I'm going to give you my law. I'm going to give you my word. I'm going to give you my presence so that you will begin to learn to live, uh, to, to live and learn what it means to be my covenant people, to reestablish my presence in the earth. 
And the nation of Israel started that journey with God. So that ultimately, and then there's the Davidic covenant. And part of the Davidic covenant is that out of, the, out of David's bloodline will establish the Messiah. And the Messiah will come. And he will ultimately be the one that will invite all men back into the covenant. But this was the progression that God was building through the Old Testament. And he used prophets to tell people about this progression. To make people aware of what God is doing and to invite people into this covenant. And so throughout the Old Testament, prophets are proclaiming to us, come back, come into the covenant. Come back to what God has established. God has not forgotten the covenant. Come back into covenant. But the nation of Israel as the carriers of the expression of the covenant of God were struggling. You know how the Old Testament pattern went with the nation of Israel. They had a good king. A good king would be a king that was interested in reestablishing covenant. And he would turn towards God. And he would reestablish God's ways. And he would put God's law up. And he would allow the nation of Israel to build God's law. And reestablish what life looks like when it's done with God and in God. And a good king would often be followed by an evil king. And an evil king would then turn away from God and say, in the same spirit as Adam and Eve, say, no, no, we're better off without God. This God is too strict. This God is too hard, it's too difficult, it's just, it doesn't make us look good in front of the other people, and this God would turn away from the covenant and would run after other gods and idols and different things, and then the, the, the rebuilding process would collapse again. And, and it was this roller coaster ride of the nation of Israel. So by the time Isaiah comes along, in the midst of the 8th century before Christ, around about 740, before Christ, the nation has actually gone into a prolonged period of falling away from God, apostasy. Their hearts have actually become hard. They, they seem to be not even interested really to follow God anymore. So God raises up Isaiah as a prophetic voice to this nation. And he starts speaking to this nation. And the first 39 chapters of the book of Isaiah is mainly Isaiah prophesying to the people of his day about their sin and their rebellion. And he's calling them like other prophets did at the time. He's, but he's particularly in Jerusalem, in Judah, and he's speaking uh, to the people and he's saying, come back to God. And he's, he's making them aware of their sin. And he's calling them back. And he starts prophesying over things that will happen in their lifetime. And as he prophesies, things starts happening. God raises up the Assyrians and they, they overcome Israel, the northern kingdoms, the ten northern tribes. And, and, and they take some of those people away into exile and, and they capture the cities. And, and Isaiah prophesied that before it happened. And often that's what God would do with prophets is he would use them to prophesy about things that, that could be judged in his lifetime. So that people would start sitting up and taking notice and recognize, wow, this person is actually being used by God. So that then God could speak through them about things that will happen when they're not alive anymore. And the last bit of Isaiah from chapter 40 till 66 is actually Isaiah prophesying about things that will happen after his lifetime. And right up to who Jesus would be, the Messiah that is to come. So the first part is this judgment. Remember I said he prophesied judgment and then he prophesied about hope. So the second part, the hope part, is everything around Jesus. Ultimately the hope for Israel is the coming of the Messiah. Some people even say that Isaiah is the fifth gospel. It has more references and descriptions about Jesus than any other books than the four gospels, Jesus himself as a person. 
You can do yourself a favor and go read the descriptions of Jesus that was given by Isaiah 700 years before Jesus was to live. It's like he met Jesus and had Skype calls with Jesus every day. It's like he, walked, he knew so much about Jesus because the Spirit of the Lord revealed it to him. There are over 60 references to Isaiah's prophetic words in the New Testament. So much of the New Testament is actually built on of what Isaiah said. He's integral. He's used more than twice more than any other prophet in the New Testament. Is the writings and the words of Isaiah. He saw and knew Jesus 700 years before. And as part of how we know that the Jesus that we worship is the Messiah because he fulfilled the prophecies that Isaiah made. But you, God uses Isaiah to speak first of all of the judgment so that the hope can come. And this sort of reveals to us something that is so important for us to understand as we build this covenant understanding that we have with God, this relationship that is defined as this partnership that is called a covenant. And who is this God that we are invited to have covenant with? Because our God, to have covenant with Him, you have to know Him. So throughout the Old Testament, God uses the prophets to tell the people again who God is. And one of the first things the, the prophets would always say about who God is, is that God is holy. God is holy. God is pure. God is righteous. God is just. God hates sin. God is holy. He is a beautiful, magnificent God. He is not, there's nothing on earth that can even begin to make us know who He is. Things can point to Him. We have shadows of who He is on earth. But you, there's nothing that you can look at and say, that is exactly how God is. Because He is so big and so magnificent and so beautiful. So what we often have recorded in Scripture is, is prophets particularly or people in the Old Testament that had this opportunity to somehow see God. And from their response when they see God, we, we get to see something about how magnificent and beautiful God is and also how far we have fallen away from that magnificence and beauty. Isaiah 6 is one of those occasions. Verse 1 to 13, and I've sort of summarized it a little bit so it's not all the scriptures but the main points. In Isaiah 6 we read the following. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and, my, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah has a moment where he sees this majesty and holiness of God. The scripture sometimes describes God as an all-consuming fire. He is so beautiful and so magnificent. But that when you see him, you go, I'm so not that. We have fallen so far away. You see, because it's easy for us when we just live in our human 
experience. That we can think we know what good is. We can think we know what love is. We can think we know what is righteousness and what is, what is proper. And, and we, we define it by ourselves and our own experience. But when we get to see God, we realize our definitions are so weak and incomplete and fail so dismally. I little, have a little home gym, can you see, <laughs> that I exercise on in, in our room. And I do exercise on it, I, I promise. I will not say how long, but I exercise on it. And I exercise on this little home gym, and like any person, you know, after I've exercised, I check, how's the muscles doing, you know? I'm not trying to build, I just don't want to be, you know, I just want my muscles to stay strong and firm, you know? Overshare, okay, let's move on. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I feel pretty good about myself when I go to gym, because it's just me and my little home gym. What I avoid is going to a real gym. Because once I walk in there, I will feel like I don't even have muscles. I will feel so, in, so like, like a failure. And you see, we can pump up ourselves and feel so good about ourselves because it's just us. But there comes a day when you stand before God. And then you go, wow, how far have we fallen? And not only do we see God, and that's what Jesus did. He came and walked among us, and he said, if you see me, you see the Father. And when we look at Jesus, we go, wow, what have we missed out on? This was God's plan. This was God's intent. And that's what the prophet did. The prophet kept saying to us, God is holy. He's so much more than what you think. But not only is he holy, he's asking of us to be holy. His expectation is that we become holy. If we want to be part of this covenant with Him, we have to represent Him, and we have to be this partners with Him. We have to be like Him, so we have to be holy. 1 Peter 1 verse 15 says, But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. And that's the problem, because we can't be holy. We struggle. We are born in sin, and we fail. So the nation of Israel, the prophet reminds them and says, God is holy, and you are not. And when, we, when that, like Isaiah, they experienced, and he said, Lord, I'm a man of unclean lips. And like with Ezekiel, and the coal is taken in burning him to purify and to cleanse him of his unholiness. That's not a nice thing. And if you've ever gone to that place, I'm sure you have, where, where you become aware of your sin and you feel so terrible and so broken and so afraid in a sense. And it's there where the second part of the message gets revealed to us through the prophet. And throughout the scripture, not only is God holy, and we fail to live up to His holiness, but thankfully, God is slow to anger. Aren't you glad for that? God is slow to anger. In, Ex in Exodus 34, verse 6, God makes Himself known to Moses. This sentiment is captured throughout the scripture and in Psalm 145 verse 8 we have these words recorded by the psalmist the Lord is gracious and compassionate slow to anger and rich in love how deeply thankful are you that God is slow to anger particularly when it's about my sin I'm so thankful when God is slow to anger sometimes I struggle when he's slow to anger with other people's sin I'll be honest with you you know, sometimes I see somebody else do something and, it, and it, it hurts me and it hurts other people and I think, Lord, you should be a little bit more quick to get angry. 
Hey? And whenever I've done that and I've said to the Lord, Lord, you should deal with that person because look at their sin and the impact it has, the Lord always reminds me of how slow he is with my sin. And then I go, thank you, Lord. I, I leave the judgment up to you. That's your business. God is slow to anger. Why is God slow to anger? He's slow to anger because he's trying to give us the space to come to repentance, to respond to the still small voice so that he doesn't have to speak loud because you don't want God to speak loud. You want God through perhaps your conscience or the word or through someone to speak softly and quietly with you and then to say, Lord, I'm so sorry and repent. And God always gives space for us to do that. But if we don't listen, God starts speaking louder and louder and louder and louder. Because although God is slow to anger, abounding in mercy, kind and gentle, Paul writes to the Galatians and he says to them, but God will not be mocked. God will not be mocked. Do not be deceived. A man reaps what he sows. Whosoever sows to please the flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to the, please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. So the next point that we have, the prophets revealed to us about God and what Isaiah reveals to the nation of Israel is God is slow to anger, but at some point God does begin to punish sin and to judge. And this may be a tough thing for us to recognize today. Just because God is slow, don't think He does not punish I remember the story that a friend of mine told of when he was young. I think, if I have the story remember correctly, he grew up in a particularly strict home on a farm. And uh, one day, he wanted to test the rules of his parents. And one of the rules that his parents had is, they always said to him, if you swear, God is going to do something. God's going to punish you if you swear. So he went outside where nobody could hear him, and he thought of the worst swear word he could think of. And he swore out loud, and then he ran to behind the shed somewhere and hid and waited for the judgment. And nothing happened. And his conclusion was, well, then it's not so bad because God did nothing. If God wanted me not to swear, then he would punish me, and he didn't, so therefore, I think sometimes we have that attitude in life. We mistake God's patience, and we think he's actually agreeing with what we're doing. These words clear. And if we don't listen to what he's given us, if we don't pay attention, if we don't hear his voice, if we, if we don't pay attention to the community, there comes a point where God says, I'm going to step in now, I'm going to act. You see, we live in a world that has this whatever attitude. You know what the whatever attitude looks like? Whatever. Did I do that well? Oh, whatever, you know. <laughs> if somebody does something against me and I, that upsets me, I go, oh, Whatever. And that, what that means is, I'm not just going to talk to you anymore. I'm not going to have any conversations with you. You carry on doing what you do. I'm just, I cut you out of my life, whatever. I can't deal with you now. Unfortunately, God doesn't have a whatever attitude. God has an attitude that says whatever it takes. You see, because we broke covenant, but he didn't. He's still in the covenant. So when you step away from him and when, when we get rebellious and when we start sinning and we start you know, just moving away from him further and further. He doesn't say, ah, whatever you want to do, just carry on. He says, now I'm rolling up my sleeves and I'm going to come and chase after you. I'm going to, I'm going to work and I'm going to bring you back to me. And one of the instruments he uses is he starts just turning up the heat a little bit. And he starts, and he starts you know, the scripture says in Hebrews, he, those whom he loves, 
He disciplines. In fact, if you're not experiencing God's discipline, then you're not a real child of His. Have you been disciplined by God? Think of David writing Psalm 32, Psalm 51, where he says, Lord, your ha-. there's a discipline event happening right there. <laughs> just, I organized that as a little, um, just a, uh, you know, if you didn't hear, there was just a child that was being taken outside. <laughs> Be kind, <laughs> it's okay. But think of David when after he sinned and he said, Lord, your hand is heavy upon me. God is slow to anger because he doesn't like to be angry. He doesn't, it's not good for us when God is angry. He, he tries everything he can to not display his anger. But he loves you too much to not get angry. There's points where he says, I'm not going to let you go. I'm not going to allow you to go down this path. For your sake and the sake of others and my creation and my glory, I'm not going to allow you to do this. I'm going to stop you. And then God uses the instruments available to him. But let's not be confused. When God judges and he disciplines, it's a tremendous act of his love. It's nothing less than his love. Sometimes in my life, it's the closest I felt the presence of the Lord is when he's got me over his lap and he's speaking to me because he's not allowed to do corporal punishment anymore. (laughs) The law says... So he speaks to me. I'm so glad that he does not. But how many of you know that God never uses more force than he has to? Because he finds no pleasure in it. But he loves you. He loves you. He loves me. He loved the nation of Israel. So in Isaiah 59 verse 1 to 3, he speaks through the prophet and he says, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. But your iniquities have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that you will not hear. For your hands are strained with blood, your fingers with guilt, your lips have spoken falsely, and your tongue mutters wicked things. The Lord says, your sin, I cannot, I cannot just let that continue. But the fantastic thing is, not only is God quick to, or slow to anger, he's quick to forgive. The moment we respond to him, And we say, Lord, we see our sin. We recognize it. That's where we get our word confess from. We call it what you call it. We see it as you see it. Lord, forgive my sin. The Lord immediately forgives. He finds no pleasure. He doesn't lengthen this process out any longer than it has to. He's just trying to get you back into the covenant that he's established with you. And the moment it's required, he will forgive. Psalm 30 verse 5 captures some of this heart of the Lord. You know the scripture. For his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. Isaiah says to the nation of... Yeah, come on, let's give the Lord a round of applause. That's fantastic. We see that displayed in the story of the prodigal son and his father. Isaiah 10 verse 25, Isaiah says to the nation of Israel, For for soon my anger against you will end, and my wrath will be directed to their destruction. The day that he's talking about is the nation of Assyria, because God said, because I love you so much, Israel, because you are my people, and I have a covenant with you. I made you a promise, and part of that promise was I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Now, I love Bob Mumford said that that is not just a promise, it's a threat. When God says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. God says to Israel, you can run, baby, but I'm not going to let you go. I'm going to run after you. 
I'm going to tackle you. I'm going to find you. And I'm going to drag you back to my presence where you, at some point, I'm going to do everything I can until you choose to have me back. But God uses in that situation, he, he looks at the sin of Israel, and after he's spoken to them, spoken to them, spoken to them, they're not listening, they're rebelling, their heart is hard, they're moving further and further away from him. God says, I'm going to use an evil nation, the nation of Assyria. I'm going to raise them up, and they're going to be my instrument that will dis- discipline you and punish you. But there will come a time when my, when my discipline will stop, and then I will deal with them. So God is a just God. There were three particular sins that we categorize as what Israel's sin was at the time. I quickly want to mention this. The three charges that God brings against them through the prophets. and Many of the prophets repeated these things. or Actually, all of them spoke about all three or some of the three. The three things that they charged the Israelites with is, first of all, social injustice. The prophets spoke to them and said, you are abusing the poor, the widow, the marginalized, the orphan. Because the nation of Israel got into a place where they were not just not looking after those, but that they were actually using them to build their own wealth and their own comfort. And God says, I hate that. You can read Psalm 50, oh, Isaiah 57, 58, where he speaks about that. The second sin was the sin of idolatry. Idolatry is whenever you replace God with something else. And the nation of Israel was looking for security, was looking for glory, was looking to be an established nation, to be a proud people. And instead of coming to God and letting God do that for them through His Word and through His righteousness and His holiness, they said, that's too difficult, we're not going to do that. So they would go to the other gods of the other nations and to other nations and say, can we share in your God's glory? And God said, I don't share my glory. And then the third sin, which sort of compounded these two and made it even worse, is what we call riches, uh, religious ritualism. They knew their sin of social injustice. They knew their idolatry. But they thought they could cover it up by pretending like they love God. So what they would do is they would still do the feasts in the tabernacle. They would still pray in the temple. They would still tithe and fast. And they would still do all the things. But their hearts weren't in it. They were just trying to pay and appease God. They were just trying to keep God at bay from judging them. And God says, I see right through you. And these were the sins of their rebellion. And God says, I can't let you carry on like this. You will destroy yourself and you will destroy my creation. So he raises up Assyria. Later he uses Babylon after the lifetime of of, uh, Isaiah and to bring these people back. So Isaiah prophesies to them. He says, when you come to the point of repentance, God will forgive you. But not only does God forgive, God restores. God is holy. He is slow to anger. At some point, He will act. Then if we repent, He forgives. And then He restores. And He says to Israel, and this is the second part of Isaiah from chapter 40 to 66, where He says, I am going to restore you. I'm going to make you more beautiful than you were before this all started. Before your apostasy and your rebellion started, I'm going to do a work in you that will be better than you were before the time. And then he says, arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. And ultimately that goes on to Isaiah 61. For the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. For and then he, he again continues to prophesy about the Messiah that's coming. But let me just stop at those two words quickly. Arise, 
shine. Now you can understand the people that have been under the hand of God, that have been disciplined by God, that have, been, that have had God work against them in a sense. They, these are a people that are lying broken on the floor. By the time this prophecy is fulfilled, which would be later, about 100 years later, in the middle of the next century, in the 560, if I remember correctly, or 530 somewhere, by the time this prophecy would be fulfilled, it's after the time of Isaiah and after the time where the temple has been destroyed, the Jerusalem's destroyed, they were, they were left as a people when God was finished with them, when their hearts only became soft against towards God and they turned towards God. They were people with a city that was in ruin and a, and a temple that was in ruin. They were, many of them were in exile. They were a broken people. So while lying, Isaiah prophesies, he says, there will come a point when you will lie in the dust and in the rubble, and in the brokenness, and you will have no sense of confidence, no feeling of, of any worth and value, and God will speak over you and say, arise, stand up, lift up your head, because even though you are a broken people, you are still my people, and your confidence, yes, Lord, we thank you, your confidence is not in your external circumstances. Your confidence is in that I have kept my covenant with you. Your confidence is not even in your ability to keep covenant, but it is in my ability to never give up on you and to always keep my covenant with you. Arise, he says. You may be here today. Let me try and apply this a little bit for us. You may be here today, and perhaps you didn't have a job for a long time now, you've gone through interview after interview, rejection after rejection, and you feel like a person lying on the floor saying, I have nothing to contribute. I don't know, I have, I feel like I've failed. Now, I'm not saying that you've gone through that situation because of God's discipline necessarily. That may be because of something completely different. But the point is still that today God says to you, arise, stand up. Not once you have the job, now stand up. Because your, your strength, your confidence is not in the job. It's not in being able to pay the bills. It's not being the security. It is in the fact that I have a covenant with you. I have a covenant with you. And if you have a covenant with me, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the creator of heaven and earth, the Jehovah Jireh, the provider, then you are far better off than what you think. Don't put your confidence in those things. Put your confidence in me. It's difficult. It's difficult, I know. But that's the faith that the Lord is calling forth from His people when He says, arise, arise. Perhaps you've got a diagnosis with a disease. Perhaps you're in a relationship that's falling apart. Perhaps you're caught in a trap of some habit or something in your life that's developed. I want to say to you today, God says to you, arise, stand up. Because I'm for you, I'm not against you. Perhaps you have been through a time of God's discipline. I want to tell you, if it's not today, there's coming a day soon. The only reason it will not be today is because perhaps you've not come to the full place of confession and repentance yet. But the moment you come to that place, there comes a day when God says, Arise, stand up. My favor is upon you. Arise. Then when we stand and we arise and we lift our heads and we look at Him, then we can shine. You can't shine if you don't arise first. That's why he says, arise, shine. It's fantastic, this scripture. 
Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. You see, this is not my light that I'm shining, it's His light. I'm a reflection of His light. It's not how wonderful I am, it's not how bright I am, it's not how clever I am, it's not how much I've got it all together. I can shine in the midst of being broken, I can shine. In the midst of actually not having a job, feeling perhaps like a failure for some other reason, struggling with my body, struggling with relationships, I can shine. Because it's not about me, it's not my light, it's His light. Now His light in the New Testament context shines through me. But it still has the same implication. So I brought my makeup mirror with today. The one I use in the mornings. When the gym doesn't work so well, you know, I rely on something else. And this is the fantastic thing. When you get saved, it's like this, your ability to reflect is removed from its covering from the place where it's hidden. And something new begins in your life. And you can reflect, am I shining light in somebody's eyes? I'm doing this on purpose, but I'll do it quickly. This is not me shining. I can't shine. But when the Lord raises us up as His people, we reflect His glory. We shine and we show Him. And we stand up and we say, Lord, let your glory be known. And then the Lord says in Isaiah 60, he says, nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. But the context Isaiah is saying is not, nations weren't going to come to Israel, they were going to come to the God of Israel through Israel. They were going to come and say, wow. You see, we can have a theology that tells us we can only shine when, as Christians when it's going well with us. We have to be the best, we have to be the cleverest, we have to be the wealthiest, we have to drive the nicest car so that other people can see how good God is. Unfortunately, Paul didn't share that philosophy. Paul said, I'm hard-pressed on every side, beaten, left for dead, but while I'm outwardly wasting away, inwardly I'm being renewed day by day, and the glory of the Lord is being awoken within me. I want to say to you today, it's not my light, it's not your light, it's His light. But you can reflect it. And the Lord takes this business of the covenant seriously. Because it's the only place we can live as mankind is under His glory. So when you and I allow sin in our lives to become the thing that starts. Now my pen is drying out so this may not work so well as I thought. But you get the idea. When I start allowing sin into my life to rule and reign. I start blocking this ability through this mirror. To reflect his glory. And then God comes by his spirit and he says, let me cleanse you. And that's possible, and my time's finished, because of Jesus. Isaiah 61, for the spirit of the Lord is upon me. That's the Messiah. And you and I live in that time where Jesus said, for this is the year of the Lord's favor. Where the covenant will be taken from a few and it will give in to all people and all nations. If you want back into the covenant, all you have to do is to say, Lord Jesus, you are the high priest. In Hebrews says, we have a better covenant because we have a better high priest than the old covenant, the Davidic covenant, the covenant with Noah, the covenant with Israel. Our covenant is with Jesus that have come to spill the blood, to pay the price, 
so that we can be forgiven. So that today you and I can go kneel before Jesus and say, Lord, I'm so sorry for my rebellion. I'm so sorry that I thought I can do life without you and actually do it better. Forgive me for my rebellion. Forgive me for my sin. Forgive me for my ritualism, for my pretend, for my trying to be a good person. Forgive me for thinking that I actually know what good is, that I think I know what love is. Forgive me, Lord. I come to you and I say, Lord, the only way I can live my life is in covenant with you. And thank you that through Jesus... That which separated me from you has been dealt with. My sins are forgiven. I'm washed clean by the blood of Christ. I can enter into covenant with you. And then you give me your spirit. Because the prophet says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Later, as Zechariah says, it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. And, on, and, and, and in Jerusalem, the spirit of God was poured out so that we can reflect his glory. And it's the Spirit of God that works within us. And it's the Spirit of God that displays the glory of the Lord through us. And each of us today, we live in the time of the Spirit. For my Spirit will be poured out upon all men. Your sons will prophesy. The Spirit of the Lord is upon us. You are a prophet. You are a proclaimer today. Because you stand and you shine. I believe God is saying to us at Hatfield, Arise, shine, for your light has come. For the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. Because I am faithful to you. Can you arise with me today? I want you to take, think about this for a moment. Can you say today, Lord, despite what's going on in my life, I arise. Because it's about you, it's not about me. I see your faithfulness, Lord. I see your covenant with me, and I arise and I stand. Because a church on its own cannot shine. It's its individuals that shine. And then collectively there's a reflection that we carry. Let's stand and arise. And can I ask you to lift your head? And look upon your Father. Look upon your Holy Father. Your beautiful, magnificent God. And as you look upon him, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3, as the veil of sin is removed from us, the veil of the law is removed from us, we begin to reflect an ever-increasing glory as we shine back what we see him to be. So look upon your God today and say, Lord, I arise in faith. I look upon you so that you can shine. Yes, Lord, we thank you that you are fighting for each of us, Lord. That you have fought for us until we came to the point where we recognized how lost we were. And we were able to turn and come back to you, Lord Jesus. And say, Lord, I don't want to live a moment without you. But Lord, I know there are people in this building today, people on YouTube, people on the radio, that may be still at that point where they haven't turned around and come back to you. And Lord, I pray today for a release of people like that in Jesus' name. If today is the day where you say, I want to come back. I want to be included in the covenant. I'm, I've messed up enough. I want to say to you, just come. God is quick to forgive and able to restore. Whatever you've lost, God can restore. Come and 
Just let us pray with you. I'm going to invite you. If you today want to say, I want to give my life to Jesus. I want to be a follower of Christ. I want you to right now to begin to come to the front. Our team's going to be here. They want to pray with you. They're just going to help you and give you some material so that you can start a journey with God and back into God's presence. You may be here with other needs. I want to say to you, it's right, it's appropriate that we seek God's blessing upon our lives. It's right that we trust God for financial breakthroughs, for healing, and we do believe in those things. We believe in miracles. If you need a miracle in your life, in a relationship, come and we pray and we trust God for miracles. But we begin to shine and we stand tall even while we're waiting for the miracle. Because sometimes God is busy doing something. So let us pray with you. Let us pray with you. May the Lord go with you in this week. You are His light that shines in the dark places. You are the light of the Lord. This earth may be dark and covered in thick darkness, but you are the light of the Lord. Go and shine His light in your family, in your workplace, in your streets, wherever you go. Shine the light of the Lord. The Lord bless you. Have a fantastic week in His presence. Amen.